chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me pray. Lord, we humbly come before you and open your word, Lord, and look into it and see this incredible, glorious vision of Christ, of the glorified Christ, the ruler of the universe, the ruler of the church, Lord, in all his majesty. I pray that as we look at this vision today that John has of Jesus, that you commanded John to write for our benefit, for the benefit of your church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to gaze at the magnificence and the gloriousness of Christ. And that by doing so, we would be radically changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, often the church, I find people in the church asking the question and, and they ask a lot of questions, but these three things often pop up when I'm talking with people in pastoral counseling. One, I, I often run into people asking me the question, how do we improve spiritually? Right? You guys have heard that, right? How do I grow spiritually is one question I get. Another question I get often is how do I cope with a major crisis? Got a major crisis. How do I cope? with the major crisis. And the third question I often get is, how do I over, overcome the attacks of Satan or spiritual warfare? How do I deal with that? How do I battle in that? I hear these kinds of questions often. And what people don't really realize is they're really asking the same question in all three of those. I mean, they're nuanced differently. But ultimately what they're asking me is, how do I walk with Jesus? How do I become like Christ? How do I live like Jesus did. How do I do that? That's what they're often asking ultimately. In other words, they're asking, how do I grow in sanctification? How do I grow in sanctification? And when I say sanctification, I mean comprehensive sanctification. I think oftentimes when we talk about this word sanctification, when we talk about it, we think, how do we become more moral? 
And that's true. That's part of it. But sanctification is more comprehensive than that. Sanctification includes how do I rejoice in suffering? How do I battle Satan and his attacks against me in the church? How do I do all of that? That's all a part of sanctification. I want to give you some basics right off before we jump in this passage, because I think the father does something incredible in this passage to tell us how we deal with, how we grow in sanctification. But I want to give you some basics right off. First of all, for those of you who don't know, we, we talk about in Christian theology, we talk about the idea of justification. Justification is the concept or the idea that we talk about when we talk about salvation. It's this, that God forgave us for our sins because of the penalty Christ paid on our behalf. And not only did he forgive us forgiveness of sins, he credited Christ's righteousness to us. So he forgave us for our sins and he credited the perfect righteous life of Jesus to our account. Why? Not because of anything we did. Not because of anything we did, but because of his grace alone. And that gift of justification is received through faith alone. That's what we talk about when we talk about justification. Then we talk about the second part of that. Okay, that's how I get saved or I get justified through faith alone. And then we come over here and talk about the second part. But what about sanctification? How do I grow? If this over here, justification, makes me positionally righteous, how do I become practically righteous? How do I actually become more holy? Because, see, justification doesn't really make me more holy, does it? It declares of me that I'm holy because of Christ. Sanctification is the process by which I become actually holy. So how does that happen? If this happens through faith, how does sanctification occur? Well, I want to, before I do that, jump right into how does sanctification occur, I want to explain justification just a bit more because I want you to see that justification and sanctification really come the same way. In our state of unbelief, we are blinded from seeing the glory of Christ. You guys know that? I mean, what is really the worst part about being an unbeliever? It's that you're blinded from seeing the glory of Christ. Do you realize the glory of Christ is the good news or the gospel? And that as unbelievers, we're blinded from seeing that? And that to be saved means, or justified, that occurs when God opens our eyes to see his glory. And he does that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me really quickly. And I'm going to show you a couple things in 2 Corinthians 4 and then in 3. Where he deals with this. Paul talking about having a ministry preaching the gospel, etc. And he goes on and in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, he says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that being Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. What's the light? What is the light that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing? The light of the gospel 
The light of the gospel. Okay, the good news of what? Of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you guys hear that? Unbelievers are unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You know when saving faith happens? It happens when God gives you the ability, when he opens your eyes. And for the first time in your life, you apprehend the glory and majesty of Christ. And you are brought to repentance. You repent and you believe. Because you see at the same time the wickedness of your sin and the holiness of God. You at the same time experience a sorrow for what you've done and a rejoicing in what Christ has done for you. It's when justification occurs. When you see the glory of Christ. So this is how we're justified. That's how we're justified. Then how are we sanctified? How do we become more like him in our daily experience? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And, and you probably don't have to turn because I want to look at verse 18 specifically. Paul says this, and we all with unveiled face. He's speaking about believers here. Their faces are unveiled. They can see. With unveiled face, unveiled face what? Beholding the glory of of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. In other words, the answer is that we become more like Jesus the same way we became positionally righteous. We look to Jesus in faith. That's how we grow in our faith. That's how we came to faith in the first place by gazing at the glory of Christ. I use the phrase, we look to Christ because we are made holy by gazing at the glory of the Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we gaze at the glory of Christ, we become more like him. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 is saying. We become more like him. Gazing at the glory of Christ through faith is what transforms us. 1 John 3.2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Hear that? What will make us like Christ? What will bring our ultimate glorification? You know what it is? When we see him as he is, that will transform us so that even in our experience now, as we apprehend the glory of Christ through faith every day, we become more and more like him. When we understand that we grow in our comprehensive sanctification by gazing at the glory of Christ, we're broken out of the weak, and I mean it, the weak man-centered approach to living the Christian life that I hear being proclaimed all over the place. There is a weak man-centered approach being proclaimed all over the place as to how you grow. You always hear it in pastor sermons and these three points of what you can do. There's three things you can do for this and three things, right? Begin the three things that you can do to be a better businessman or husband or father or wife or Christian. And you know what? Most of those things are generally not very helpful. 
When biblically, what you need to do is gaze at the glory of Christ. When we gaze at Christ in his word, we'll be like him and we don't need any tidy little formulas to get it done. We can move away also from the unhelpful focus we often hear is, here's three techniques, three techniques to what? Persevere in the face of suffering. Or three techniques to deal with the daily pressures or stresses in life. What does Scripture say? Focus on Christ in His Word. Focus on Christ in His Word. When we look at the biblical vision of Christ, we don't need any great techniques to overcome our suffering. I also hear three strategies we can use oftentimes. I use the number three because you so often put in these cute PowerPoint presentations, right? Three of this and three of that. Three strategies we can use to undo the instability in our lives, the culture, the socio-political institutions that surround us, right? Just three strategies we can use to do that. And if we would just look to Christ, gaze on him and declare him to others, declare him to an unbelieving world, wouldn't need all that stuff. Finally, we can stop pontificating about how we can improve the church or grow the church or make the church more entertaining for youth and engaging for adults, interesting and acceptable to unbelievers and fulfilling for believers. If we would only preach and pray and sing and fellowship and serve and evangelize in light of the biblical vision of Christ. It's simple. We come to salvation by apprehending through faith the glory of Christ and we grow in it by doing the same thing. We constantly gaze at and declare the glory of Christ. When we do that, we grow in our faith. Because I don't have a big formula to give you. I don't think the Bible has a big complicated formula to give you. I think it's really simple. It's very hard for us to do, but it's very simple to figure out. Perhaps the greatest evidence of this fact is the way the Father encourages the church in Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Notice I said the way the Father encourages the church in the book of Revelation. You might go, wait a minute, the book of Revelation is the Father encouraging the church? Yes, absolutely. Revelation is first and foremost a revelation the Father gave to Jesus to show the church. Look at Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that may soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. You see, the father gave this revelation to the son to eventually through an angel show to John. And John wrote it down so we all could see it. In the midst of one of the most trying times in church history, the Father gave a vision to the church. Really, the, the church that we're dealing with here in Revelation, 
arguably, depending on what scholars you listen to, whether this happened prior to 70 AD, that John wrote this and received this vision, in which case they would have been under the Neronian persecution. That's the Caesar would have been Nero who would have been persecuting the church fairly intensely, taking Christians actually at some points and wrapping them in candle wax and in his garden and using them as candles was a pretty common sight in that persecution in the early church. It was either during that time or it was under the reign of Domitian in which he also unleashed a furious attack on the Christians. It was also during the time of a Roman Empire that was overrun with ungodliness. Absolutely overrun with it. You want to talk about pluralism and multiple religions and homosexuality and child molestation? Do you realize that every Caesar, every Caesar during that era took young boys and had sex with them in front of the entire empire that wanted to gather to see it? Every single one of them. Our government hasn't even begun to get close to the kind of corruption that was occurring in Rome. Not even close yet. That's how corrupt this society had become. This is the condition that the churches are dealing with. Very corrupt, very immoral, temptation all around, persecution and suffering. And what does the father do? The father in his wisdom says, you know what I'm going to give my church? I'm going to give them a vision of my son. That's what I'm going to do. What was that vision? It's a vision of the glorified Christ. The father knew that the church needed to see a picture of Jesus in all his glory. That's what they needed. The father knew that that would sanctify the church so that it would stand in tribulation and suffering, so it would continue to grow in holiness in the, holiness in the midst of a sinful world, so that it would not be attack, crushed by the attacks of Satan. What would they need? They need to see Jesus in all his glory. And the Father knew that. Over this summer, we'll look at these seven letters to the churches of Revelation. We're going to look at them. And what I want you to know is that as we look at them, in every single one of them, the first thing we will see is a picture of the glorified Christ. Every single letter we will see a picture of the glorified Christ. The sovereign Lord of the church delivered to his churches letters picturing first himself. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to send you a letter to help you stand up. And the first thing I'm going to do is give you a picture of me. And the pictures that he specifically gives each church of himself are the attributes of God or of Christ he knows are most important to their context. And almost every single one of them is drawn out of this first vision we see. Today I want to look at the comprehensive picture that is given of our Lord Jesus Christ because here in chapter 1 we get the first vision of Christ and it's the comprehensive one. In each of the letters it's broken down. I want you to see that Jesus, I want you to see Jesus as the glorious sovereign Lord of the church, and the universe. I want you to see Jesus as the glorious sovereign Lord of the church and the universe. And you know what? At the, at the end of this whole thing, I'm hoping, I'm hoping you're laid prostrate before your king. Hoping you are. I don't know how, honestly, I or you or any other believer can read this passage 
and not be laid out by it, not be utterly devastated by it, except that we're so hard and so self-focused that we just don't really care anymore. As we approach this vision, I want to deal with the setting of the vision, the audience of the vision, the situation of the audience of the vision, the content of the vision, and the proper response of the vision. You don't have to remember all that because I'll give it to you in here in a minute. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Well, I want to give you the setting of the vision. The first thing he says is this. I, John, by the way, he's said that his name has popped up three times in the first nine verses. So we know he's the one writing. This is often done anytime a person sees what they're doing as giving some sort of biblical prophecy. They identify themselves. John knows he's giving a prophecy to the church. It says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Here's the setting. John is on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos was a 10 mile by five mile Roman penal colony. This is the place where Rome sent those guys who were, they considered a disturbance. These guys will not stop disturbing our society. So we will put them on this 50 square mile island. It's a pretty rocky island. Apparently the waves crash into it like crazy. Um, Apparently it wasn't a very comfortable place to be. But again, he wasn't being tortured there. He was banished there to keep him quiet. So he doesn't keep causing all the ruckus. And what's the ruckus? Why is he there? Says I was there. Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was there because I was preaching the gospel. So Rome sent me away. It was disturbing the society too much. And he was there. And when this vision comes, he was on the Lord's day. What's the Lord's day? Does anybody know? Sunday. The Lord's day refers to the day of the resurrection of Christ. It became the day on which the church always gathered to worship. Historically, the church always gathered to worship on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, actually Friday evening through Saturday evening. That's when the church would gather to worship. However, when Christ came, died and was resurrected, the church began to worship on the day of the resurrection, which is Sunday, the first day of the week. And they called it the Lord's day. So John is on the island of Patmos. Here's the setting. He's on the island of Patmos on a Sunday, probably gathered to worship Christ. He's probably just there to worship on this Sunday. And it says he was in the spirit. I was in the spirit. This isn't some kind of crazy, you know, charismatic thing that he's talking about here. If people are wondering, what does it mean to be in the spirit here? This is a very specific mentioning of being in the spirit. When he says I was in the spirit, what he's talking about is the fact that um, it's, it's like Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 37, one Ezekiel's about to have this vision of God. And he says, he starts off saying he was in the spirit. In fact, Jeremiah talks about being in the spirit. Isaiah talks about being in the spirit. These guys are in the spirit, which means that John says somehow I was in a trance brought by the Holy spirit in order to see a vision. It's a very special sort of circumstance, very special sort of circumstance. He's in a prophetic visionary state. So that's where John is on the island of Patmos. 
on a Sunday and he goes into this spiritual trance and he begins to see a vision. So who is the vision for? It's for John, but it's also for a greater audience than that. Who really is the audience of the vision? Look at verse 11. So he was, he heard a voice like a trumpet and it says this saying, write what you see in a book. Hear this. This vision isn't just for you, John. I want you to write it down in a book. Why? So other people can see it. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. If you look at verse 4, we also find out very similarly that this is to the seven churches. John is writing, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. In other words... All of the book of Revelation is a book given to the seven churches of Asia. The whole book, it was given to them. Now, why seven churches? And why these seven churches? I'll tell you, first of all, why seven churches? Seven is a symbolic number for completeness. means something's complete. It's taken from the creation account. Six days the Lord created the earth, and on the seventh he did what? He rested. It was complete. It was done. Why seven churches? Because he wanted to say that this is not just for these literal seven churches, although it was, but this is for the whole church. It's for the complete body of Christ. It's for everyone, the church universal. Why these seven? Why these seven churches did he pick? Well, these were seven, these seven churches were actually, interestingly enough, were on a circular postal route. There was a postal route in Rome and in this part of Asia, and they were on a circular postal route so that every one of these letters would go to every one of these churches. They would circle around. And they're actually listed, by the way, the letters are in order that you would take on that postal route. In other words, while these are seven literal churches dealing with real problems, at the same time, every letter has something to say to every local church throughout history. Hear that? Every letter has something to say to every local church throughout history. And what's the calling of these seven churches? Look what it says about them. Verse um, 12. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. An interesting statement, by the way. I turned to see the voice. You usually hear a voice, right? I turned to see the voice. He knew Christ was behind him. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, seven golden lampstands. Why a lampstand? Why does he talk about these churches as lampstands? You guys know what the uh, symbol for Israel still is to this day? It's a menorah, isn't it? You know what a menorah is? It's this lampstand with the seven candles on it. Why seven lampstands? Because it represents not just Israel, but the whole church. In other words, this is for all the nations. All the nations are going to be what Israel was supposed to be. All the believers from every nation will be what Israel was supposed to be. And you know why Israel was supposed to be a lampstand? Because they were supposed to be the what? The light of the world. What does Jesus tell his church? You are the light of the world. Hear that? That's what their calling was. Their calling was to be the light of the world. 
But there is no longer just one of them. There were seven because of the number of completeness. Because he wanted it to be known that the church in all the nations will be the light of the world. What's the situation of these churches, the seven churches? Look at verse 9 again. I want to help you understand the situation of the churches that John's writing to and really John's situation. He starts off with this interesting phrase and he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. You know, I think we kind of read over this word because one, we don't understand the nature of brotherhood in the New Testament. Do you know that in the first century to be a brother was to say you're my brother was stronger than to say this is my spouse or this is my parent. Brotherhood was the closest sort of kinship. Even spiritual brotherhood. Closer than any other sort of kinship. First and second, he says this word partner. Partner is the same word that we hear often said as koinonia. Have you guys heard that word koinonia? Koinonia means what? Fellowship, right? I'm your brother and I fellowship with you in what? In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. They were either in or were about to enter a time of terrible persecution under the rule of the Roman Empire. And they, he gives these three terms that are all to be taken together. Now, in my English version, it's misleading because it says the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Technically, the the should only be in front of the tribulation because there is no article in front of the other two. Why? Because all three of these terms, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, are supposed to be taken together. They're supposed to be taken together with kingdom as the middle term. In other words, I am your brother and fellow partner or fellowshipper in suffering for the kingdom or suffering and patient endurance, which means that's what it's about to be a part of the kingdom. Now, this is a radical concept, an absolutely radical concept. We need to understand that as believers, we're already experiencing the kingdom. Do you guys know that? When Jesus came, what did he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? When the king showed up, the kingdom came with him. And guess what? When he left, the kingdom didn't leave. The kingdom is still here in part. In part. But not completely. In other words, Jesus inaugurated or began the kingdom, but it isn't consummated until he returns. When it's consummated, that's the day we all look forward to. Why? Because he will, there will be an end to all evil, suffering, death, everything. The end will rule and reign with Christ. But right now, the way it, what it means to be part of the kingdom is the same thing it meant for Jesus as our king when he was here. To be a part of the kingdom means to suffer. You hear that? That's the kingdom already. The kingdom already is the kingdom of suffering and patient endurance. The kingdom not yet is the kingdom of victory. And an end to pain and suffering. We already experience the kingdom. If you look at Revelation 1.6, he says this. 
Jesus, who freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Hear that? He made us a kingdom and priests. First Peter, you don't have to turn there. First Peter 2 says a very similar thing. Quoting from Exodus 19 and applying it to the church, he says this, verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're a kingdom and priests already. We live in this kingdom as priests and kings who minister and rule how? Through suffering and patient endurance. How do we minister and rule in this kingdom right now, God's kingdom now, through suffering and patient endurance? In preaching the gospel, we become like our Lord who was the first faithful witness, Revelation 1.5. How did the first faithful witness proclaim the gospel? By suffering and what? Death. That's how we did it. And guess what? We are called to the same thing. We suffer and die for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. As Jesus, our king, lived to suffer and die for the kingdom, so do we. Philippians 129 is interesting. It says, it's been appointed unto you not only to believe, but to suffer. Hear that? It's been appointed unto you, church, not only to believe, but to suffer. Philippians 3.10 probably one of the most interesting verses to me. Paul says this, and it's such a strange statement. I want to know Christ, which doesn't surprise me. Everyone goes, oh yeah, I want to know Christ. We read right over the next part. I also want to know what? The fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, I want to share in Christ's sufferings. How many of you want to do that? You want to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings? You want to share in him? Romans 8, talking about the end when God comes, restore all things. Before it says that, it says this. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We all love that part. Next verse or next part of the verse, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are called to suffer with him. In fact, I'll say this. We are privileged to suffer with Christ. We are to consider our highest goal and blessing to suffer with him. Do you guys hear that? We're to consider it our highest goal and privilege to suffer with Jesus. Yet to hope for this is completely contrary to what we generally hope for, isn't it? What do we generally hope for? Honestly, I mean, I, I'm going to tell you what I generally hope for. I generally hope that God does everything in his power to alleviate my suffering. To make me as comfortable as possible. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. The one thing we want the least is to suffer. Isn't that true? I don't know about you guys. That's me. I don't want to suffer. In fact, 
I will find ways as a pastor to try to alleviate your suffering. And in doing so, I'm probably just doing you a disservice. The Bible says it in multiple terms. We're to carry our cross. Why do you carry your cross? Your cross isn't that there's an irritating person at work with you. I'm carrying my cross. I got to talk to this person. That's not your cross. Okay, a cross is an instrument of death. We're to die to ourselves. We're to desire to fellowship in his sufferings. We're to desire to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. This is still one of those passages that blows me out is Acts chapter 5. After the apostles receive a severe beating for talking about Christ and are sent out of the temple, do you know what they do? They run out rejoicing. They're rejoicing. And why does it say they rejoiced? They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Think about that. We would be, after a severe beating for preaching the gospel, most of us would be going to church and complaining and asking the pastor, why did God let this happen to me? I feel so terrible about this and I'm so angry with God. But the apostles run out of the temple going, thank God he counted me worthy to suffer. I'm so thankful I get to fellowship with Christ in this. They would have been disappointed had they not gotten the beating. It's not a privilege we long for. However, we can, we can learn to long for that privilege. You know how? By gazing at the glory of Christ. When our eyes are set on what we can see, then selling our possessions to help the poor seems crazy and irresponsible, doesn't it? Selling what we have to help the poor seems crazy and irresponsible when our eyes are set on what we can see. When our eyes are set on what we can see, then proclaiming the truth in a world that thinks we are fools seems to be an insurmountable challenge, or an insurmountable challenge, doesn't it? When our eyes are focused on what we can see, then loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us seems to be something for the super spiritual. When our eyes are set on what we can see, then giving up our comforts to proclaim Christ where he has never been named seems at best romantic and at worst too scary a proposition to ever consider. When our eyes are set on what we can see, then we become those John Piper describes as living a middle-class American life, riding high in our SUVs, dropping nickels into other people's dreams, only to one day retire and die in a lakeside rocking chair, useless and wrinkled, leaving a huge inheritance to confirm our middle-aged children and their worldliness. Did you hear that? However, if we look to the vision of the glory of Christ given in the Bible, And if we gaze continuously on it, we can live, we can live as those who counted a blessing to be considered worthy to suffer for the name. It's possible. But we have to look more at the glory of Christ and less at what our eyes can physically see around us or it will never happen. And the Father understands this. And that's why the Father gives the church a vision of him. Look at the vision with me in verse 12 of Revelation 1. He says this, Then I, 
turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Where does that come from? One like a son of man. Why would that blow everybody away? Look at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Keep your finger in Revelation. Look at Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel receives a vision. And he receives a vision of four kingdoms that are coming. Okay? Well, one he's already in, which is Babylon. They're all going to conquer Israel. One is Babylon. It's the first one he's in. The next one he sees coming is Medo-Persia. Okay? Which came second. The next one he sees coming is Greece. Alexander the Great specifically, which came And then the final one he sees is Rome. Human kingdom, by the way. And then after he sees the Roman Empire, he sees the kingdom of God and of of Christ. That's what he sees. And that's what he describes. Look with me at verse 9. Daniel's talking. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days, that's speaking of God, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. And the hair of his head pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking this horn being the Antichrist. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and here's what he sees, and listen to this. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a vision that the Jews looked at often. And you know what happens right off the bat? The father gives him a picture of the son, and it says, I saw in the midst of the seven golden lampstands one like a son of man. You know what he's saying? I saw the great messianic king who comes with the clouds, the one who comes to judge, the one whom all nations and peoples and tribes will worship. I saw him. It's a powerful statement in this vision. It goes on in the vision in Revelation and says this, he was in the, the son of man was in the midst of the lampstands. He's in the midst of the churches. He's among them. Do you guys know that? Jesus is among his churches. Jesus is among Sovereign Grace Church. Caring for and tending to it. That's where he is. God wants his church to know that. Jesus is here among you tending to you. And he was clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. 
around his chest. Why? Why a long robe? It's identical to the description of the priestly garments in the Old Testament. The priests wore long robes and they wore a golden sash. If you wear your golden sash at the top, do you know what it means? Around your chest, it means you're the high priest. So you know who John sees? John sees Jesus, the Davidic messianic king who is in the midst of his churches, who is the great high priest. He's the great high priest. He's among his churches. He's made atonement for them. He's constantly interceding for them. And then it says this, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Look at the white like wool. Do you guys remember that description from Daniel 7 that I just read? It says of the father that his hair was white like wool. He is the personification of wisdom. He's been around eternally. He is the ancient of days. In other words, John says, I saw God. I saw the Lord. The one who is from eternity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Why? Because he sees everything. Nothing escapes his watchful eye of judgment. The church was being persecuted. And you know what they wanted to know? They wanted to know if God would really have vengeance. You know what Jesus says? I'm going to judge everything. Nothing escapes my sight. That's pictured in the fact that his eyes are flaming so fire. His watchful eye of judgment sees everything. And the church can be assured that vindication will be the Lord's. He will vindicate them. Goes on, his feet were like burnished bronze. Burnished bronze is hot, right? Feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Why? Because he's holy. He's exceedingly holy and he brings justice. That's what that's picturing. And then it says his voice was like the roar of many waters. Can't you hear John on this rocky island with waves crashing against it? And he hears this great voice of God, of Christ, and it's like many waters. It's like a powerful waterfall if you ever stand next to one. That's what he's describing here. You know, God's voice is described that way in the Old Testament. He speaks with an overwhelming authority and power. That's what he's saying. Jesus speaks with an overwhelming authority and power. And in his right hand, look at what it says next. In his right hand, he held seven stars. The seven stars are, the, are essentially the messengers to the seven churches. In other words, he says, Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the church and he has a hold of them. He has authority over them. He keeps them in his grip. Not only is in the midst of them, but he's holding on to them. Then he goes on, it says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. If you look at Revelation 19, you want to know what that sharp two-edged sword is like? About? You want to know what it's about? It's about the judgment of Christ. Why? Because the Roman blade, by the way, why does it come from his mouth? The Roman blade at the time, the short sword, the broad sword of the Romans, it looked like a tongue. And that's why he's using that descriptor. What he's saying is that Jesus will come 
And this is Revelation 19 at the great supper of the Lamb, right? There's two suppers that, in that meal or that time. The first supper is the supper in which the believers eat with the great supper of the Lamb. And then there's the great supper of God which follows it, which is where Jesus comes down with the sword from his mouth and cuts down all of his enemies. And he gathers them up into a vat, a wine vat. You can read Revelation 19 in his white robe and stomps on them until their blood covers his robe and makes it red. And he calls on the vultures to eat the great supper of God. And the vultures come and feed on those people. That's a pretty scary picture, isn't it? But for the church who's being persecuted, for the church who's being set aflame in gardens as candles, it's reassuring for them to know that vengeance is the Lord's. And because vengeance is the Lord's, they can pray for their enemies. Goes on, it says this, and this is the height of the vision, and his feet, his face, excuse me, his face was shining like the sun, or it was like the sun shining in full strength. Basically, he's unapproachably holy and glorious. His glory is blindingly magnificent. What we have here is the picture of a glorious, holy, all-knowing Lord of history who walks in the midst of his church and sovereignly rules over the church and who will sovereignly and fully judge those who are his enemies and the enemies of his church. And he is magnificent. See, if we understand who our Lord is, we can walk away from the false promises the world holds out. And we can walk into all the suffering God holds out for those who walk with Jesus. And we can do it looking forward to the day that we'll be glorified with him. So how does John respond to the vision? Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is the guy who John spent three years with. Hanging out. They were buds. John is laying his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. They're friends. And when John sees Jesus revealed in his glory, he doesn't say, hey, buddy, how are you doing? It's cool. Want to get some lunch? Does he? He falls on his face as though dead. Falls on his face as though dead. Do you know that happens every time you see somebody in the Bible responding to the holiness of God, seeing the holiness of God? Isaiah, what happens? Falls on his face. Woe is me. I'm undone. R.C. Sproul tells a story of a time that he was hanging out with Bill Hybels. If you guys know Bill Hybels, he started a church called Willow Creek Community Church, which really launched what it was, came to be known in American evangelicalism as the seeker-sensitive movement. Before Bill Hybels did that, he used to hang out at R.C. Sproul's Ligonier Center in Pennsylvania in the summer and study with Sproul. And one summer he came and he told R.C. Sproul, he said, you know, R.C., I, I did a s survey 
of the area where I'm going to plant a church. I did a survey and I went around and asked people why they don't go to church. And the number one reason I heard was because they were bored. They go to church because it's boring. He said, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a church that's not boring. We're going to have videos and dramas. We're going to entertain people. We're going to preach really short sermons. Going to load it up with music, cut out most of the prayer. Going to make sure we take away all the religious symbols that might offend people. We're going to have big drama teams. By the way, all this was done. And we're going to pack that place out. And guess what? There's about 30,000 people that go there. Because the people in the church are bored. R.C. Sproul responded, Bill, you need to understand something. Never, never, never does anyone in the Bible ever see the holiness of God proclaimed in Scripture. Never does that person say, I'm bored. Never. They say, I'm undone. I fell as though dead. And as he falls prostrate before the Lord, Jesus comforts him. Look what he does. Verse 17, but he laid his right hand on me, the right hand being of comfort and commissioning. And he says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Isn't it interesting? When Jesus says I'm the first and the last, you know what he means? I'm sovereign over all of history. I'm God. In Isaiah 44... God says of himself, I'm the first and the last. Jesus now picks that up and says of himself, I am the first and the last. You know what he's saying? I'm sovereign over every single event of history. All of it. Nothing. Nothing happens in your life. Suffering, persecution, death, sin. Nothing that I'm not sovereign over. Nothing. Because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and I am alive. I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I have the power of life and death in myself. I control it all. Now, let me ask you this question. Seriously, let me ask you this question. Does Jesus, the thought of falling at your face when you see the holiness of Christ and him coming up to you and saying, putting his right hand on you and saying, fear not, I'm God. God. 